Oh, here is a very, very common mistranslation. Allahu Akbar means God is greater. People keep saying it means he's the greatest or God is greatest or God is great. No, it is Allah, which is short for Al-Ilehu, which is the God. Okay, so the God, Akbar is greater. Al-Akbar, okay, so if someone said Allahul Akbar, Al-Akbar, that means God is the greatest. If they said Allahu Kabir, it means God is great, but they don't say that. They say Allahu Akbar, which is the God is greater. In other words, whatever God you think you have, the God is greater. Okay, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. This is just, as I always say, these are secular podcasts. These are just more from a linguistic perspective. Of course, anyone with any theological overlay or predisposition is going to say that theologically that's not correct. That's absolutely your business, your belief. But that's where I go with it. America. Hey, Eagle, how are you? Gotta go feed my boys. You always just disappear and reappear. It's because he's a what do you want, Pampas? Nothing. <laughs> I have given more mainstream reviews of the beginning of the book. As I said before, this book, The Tragedy of Islam, Admissions of a Muslim Imam by Imam Muhammad Tawhidi. He is a someone who grew up in the Shia section of Islam and of course as most of those in the Muslim world or the Middle Eastern world or the Arabic world understand there are so many different people claiming to be uh, Muslim or that from their perspective other people are claiming but don't represent true Islam that's how it works from the secular perspective the way I see it is just like every other religious disposition you have an archipelago from the outside it looks like a monolithic block from the inside it does not in the same way that we refer to Christians as if it's one block, but in fact, you have many Protestants who will believe that the Catholics are not Christian, Catholics who think Protestants are not Christian or misguided, and then you have the Orthodox who think they're both misguided, and then of course there are subsets and subsets of all of the above, which I won't get into today. So, the first two parts of the book, the first one was dealing a lot more with immigration and integration, and the amount of suffering as I've mentioned before on YouTube, you can go have a look at that. That's uh, on the Gab Smack channel. And I think it's called The Tragedy of Islam Part 1. And that's my review of that section. The second section becomes quite dark and really disturbing. And talks about a lot of uh, the details and what is allegedly representative of the biography of the Prophet Muhammad or the Prophet of Islam Muhammad and uh, people around him at the time who are believed to be either friends or enemies, depending on one's perspective. Each person, of course, will think they are correct. I understand that. I'm not here to tell you otherwise. I'm looking at this more of a scientific perspective, as I've said now a million times. Good God, Geb smacked it me some chocolate. Pompous, just go get it yourself. Fine. Um, now we'll go sit in the corner and soak until I get him some. You know it. All right. So the next parts he talks about are reasons that his views of uh, the prophet being more of a peaceful, conservative, pious person and other people being misogynistic around him uh, that express views that uh, he did not, or the prophet, he did not believe in according to this uh, conservative imam. Uh, that's discussed in the chapters I'm into now, about halfway or third to 50% of the way through the book, talks about Aisha, who was one of the wives and one of the most prolific, famous wives of Muhammad. A lot of people say that she was 
married at six with the consummation at nine. He argues it was actually 17 and somewhere between 17 and 20 using data points to support his narrative. Now, that's not completely scientific. It's the first step. Of course, the scientific section would be to go one step further and to falsify other narratives and then try and falsify your own and then have some sort of peer review. But we know that that does not tend to happen in the spheres of religious thought. Some people will disagree yet again, but of course, that will always happen when your podcast reaches enough people. All right, let's go to the next part. Um, what fascinates me about this is that it does give you a much more nuanced understanding of that archipelago that some people in the West or many people in the West aren't yet used to. Why am I used to it? Well, uh, for those of you who don't know my background, I am someone who was born and raised in Australia, who's also lived in the Near East, which the West refers to as the Middle East, being both the predominantly European Christian section of Lebanon, or what's left of it. That's where my family originated from. And in Syria, I was there for quite a while as well. Uh, what else can I tell you about that? I have studied Hebrew, and I have Palestinian family, and Lebanese, which is older than Arabic, and some people think it is Arabic, which is not. It's a descendant of Aramaic, with a lot of Arabic words, in the same way that English is a descendant of Anglo-Saxon German, with a gigantic amount of French words, hence why Lebanese and Maltese are almost mutually intelligible, at least at a low level they are. They're both offshoots from Semitic languages from a long time ago. Um, all right, so that's, uh, they call Maltese an offshoot of Siculo Arabic, which is a very different version, of course, compared to the Arabic of today, which is not really spoken around the world. It's, I don't think any major Arabic-speaking country actually uses Arabic itself to speak in. They use it more for the news, sort of like what was happening post the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, where Latin turned into a Vulgate uh, to the street version of Latin, which then metamorphosized into the various Romance dialects, which they themselves became, which themselves became languages over time, not that long ago. Hence the similarities, striking similarities and grammatic similarities, punctuation, uh, grammar, uh, dialects, uh, accents of the Romance languages today, Italian, French, Catalan, Spanish, Portuguese, etc., etc. Romanian, I can keep going. Italian, if I said that or not, I don't know. And you will find the same thing with spoken Arabic around the Middle East. The most understandable of Arabic dialects, I would say, are probably, and not because they're easier, but Lebanese and Egyptian. Normally because about four out of every ten songs that come out in the Middle East are from Lebanese artists. The other four are from Egyptian artists. Egyptians are prom prominent in the film industry. In the Middle East, and so their language, of course, via film would be, say, pervaded amongst the Middle Eastern population. But me personally, uh, being one of the diaspora, without going to university and studying actual Arabic, there is no way I would have understood it. But now I do, which is great, because when I went to Spain and met a Moroccan, we had to both speak in classical Arabic because neither one of us would have any chance of understanding the other in our spoken languages of Lebanese and Moroccan. No chance no chance. <laughs> you basically have a better chance of trying to understand someone speaking Greek if you understand Italian, something like that. They're both Indo-European, but of course, descendants, one of Italic and one of 
coin or and then ancient Greek. Both of those were cousins, but not siblings. So that's what's happening thus far in the book. And why is it important? Well, it's important to show that a conservative Muslim can still be a conservative, not a moderate, but yet not have any chance of becoming someone sympathetic to ISIS because his beliefs are starkly different outside of, say, the, the Quran and the Shahada, which is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, which is no God but Allah, Muhammad's the messenger of, of God. So that's important to realize because when people talk about the word moderate, they sort of imply in the English language some sort of spectrum where if you're partially a believer, you're okay. If you're a moderate believer, you're okay. But if you believe too much, you become a terrorist, which is not true at all. There are different branches. So an analogous example in Christianity, not equal, but analogous. So something you can compare it to, to understand this concept would be that Catholics believe in transubstantiation. If you're a moderate Catholic, you may or may not believe in transubstantiation. If you're a devout Catholic, then you will believe in transubstantiation. But as a devout Christian, it does not mean that you would believe in transubstantiation because you might be a devout evangelical or a devout Anglican or a devout Lutheran. And none of those, as far as my understanding, um, accept transubstantiation at all. And so you could be an extremist evangelical and yet not believe in transubstantiation. And it's the same thing here. You can be a hyper, hyper conservative Muslim of the variant of uh, Imam Tawhidi. And there are other variants, of course, where jihad is more to do with an internal struggle. And they focus on the pious history of Muhammad and reject many of the violent verses or what they deem to be misogynistic, etc., so that guy could believe, Dr. Imam Dr. Tawhidi could believe as much as he wants and never get to that point of thinking that jihad meant the killing of non-Muslims or conflating non-Muslim with someone who's guilty because they've rejected Islam as some, as some strains of Islam do. Alrighty, so that's up to chapter 3, page 132. I will keep going with reading this and I'll give you some more reviews. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hey Pompous, whatever. Chapter 4 lays a historical background with respect to the context that we're in, in what was happening amongst Arabic nations at the time of the early centuries of Islam. And as we say from a secular perspective, you can see something called syncretism, or I guess the lay way of explaining that is the bleeding of pre-existing cultures into and uh, uh, along with intertwining into what would become an official uh, religion or belief system of a certain peoples. And so it's better to talk about religion in more of an ethno-religious construct, a two-dimensional construct. You've got the people, the culture, as well as whatever belief it may be. Arabs at the time had violence was incorporated into their culture and there were codes and ethics a code of ethics and laws with respect to how war was conducted and there was also how that violence was used and how that fell under that ethics which is interesting the reason that those are important are to normalize what someone does with respect to whatever culture they're in and normalizing doesn't mean it's good morally it means that when you look at someone as an exponent of whatever culture they come from, how far they deviate from that culture. That difference says more about them than what they did from our perspective. 
in the same way that in our culture there are things that we do that might be considered inhumane in the future such as wearing socks if socks have you know are discovered to be related to the suicide of those who make the socks in third world countries for example there's some historical context in chapter 4 talking about the other larger empires around the arabs that were dying and due to disease due to disasters due to economic failures and their own major superpower wars persia and the byzantine empire for example if you want to know more about that in detail it's best to look up i think it's in the shadow of the sword by dr tom holland not to be confused with spider-man and there's a free audio version on youtube there's also a one hour presentation if you just look up dr tom holland islam he's a brilliant historian who was studying all of the cultures around that time at the same time to give you much more of a detailed context one of the things he talks about for example is a jewish king or the last jewish king of saudi arabia who cut off a christian woman's head after feeding her the blood of her children and grandchildren uh, because she refused to convert away from christianity so it, show, it shows you that it, is, it wasn't that somehow the whole place was peaceful and he rose one person. It doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's more of a context so that you can, just like anything, it's always good to know the context. Dr. Tawhidi brings up specific rules that were applied to religious Islamic soldiers that were religiously forbidden, not just by law, but by religious law, by decree of their God, uh, from acts of terrorism such as attacking women and children and forbidden to harm trees or pollute rivers with blood. Now, one or, one or, whether or not that's actually true, as I've said before on many of my Periscope casts, it matters what people believe to be true. Reality is less important, if it even exists, uh, than what people perceive to be reality within their heads in terms of how they behave. And the point is that Imam Tawhidi believes that that's the case. And that shows that because that's his belief, it would be impossible for him to then uh, justify harming women or children or attacking someone who is unaware that the attack is coming or that they're engaged in, a, in an idea that they're uh, opposed, let's say, in a state of war. Dr. Tawhidi suggests that terrorism was a deviation from Islam. And once again, like I said, it, it, that the point is not whether he's right or not for us outside of the Islamic world. It's important to know that there are these fundamental disputes between specific religious scholars to show you that it's not one monolithic block and that if you believe in it hardcore, you're going to become a terrorist. That's only true for some versions, but not this version that Dr. Tawhidi is discussing. He then talks about the appointing of the Khalif or the Caliphs and his disdain and how they were appointed and some of them who were appointed. He talks about the introduction of the split between Shia and Sunnah. And he also talks about specific family disputes which were consistent with the appointment of the first Khalif being heretical. Now, of course, like I said, this is going to incite so many people in certain ways. And that, like, this is not my beliefs. I don't know about this. I'm talking specifically about this book. And it doesn't matter necessarily to most of us outside about what the beliefs are, it's the fact that they are different. And to show you that they're justified with certain pieces of evidence, including, say, evidence of, you know, how you want to define it as evidence, but suggested evidence of Muhammad's own family disagreeing 
with the setup of the uh, caliph's successors. Now, consistent with scientific research, research, he uses specific quotes and he has a bibliography at the end of the book showing where he got those quotes from. So you can decide whether or not those books are valid. Obviously, I'm not going to decide that. That can be for scholars to figure that out. Abu Bakr is quite demonized in this book. Abu Bakr was, I think, the, he was a father-in-law of Muhammad the Prophet and was the father of Aisha and was deemed by Fatima Manisi, a feminist within Islam who I think died only recently, uh, to be a misogynist who perverted the words of Islam. So it's interesting that people from opposite sides of the Islamic world, geographically, and as well as ideologically, Fatima Manisi was, I'm pretty sure, from the Sunnah side, and Dr. Tahidi from the Shia side, both agree on their disdain uh, of Abu Bakr as the first caliph or as a human being. Very interesting stuff that even within the Muslim world, you can have people vehemently opposed to the successor of Muhammad himself. So this is how far back these type of disputes go. There's a pretty substantial claim on page 137, where in the opinion of Imam Tawhidi, the culture of terrorism in Islam was officially introduced by Abu Bakr. Apparently he legalized it and gave it a religious coating by uses violent by using violent verses of the Quran, which he interpreted to his own benefit. Now, that's something that we've spoken about a lot when I teach the Quran in, in Arabic and I explain that specific quotes out of context can mean anything. When it talks about killing the innocent or killing the guilty, for example, or who, who's defined as guilty, who's defined as innocent, and, and these type of ideas, or is it fighting, does it mean killing? It's, it's quite fascinating, actually, in, once we get into more detail in that. Uh, and you can get that at, at Six Lang. So at and then S-I-X-L-A-N-G at Periscope. And it's on Twitter as well. You can find us there. Dr. Tawhidi then talks about beheadings in reasonably graphic detail, which is quite disturbing. So you've got to have a strong and heavy, what do you call it? A strong heart to be able to get through that. And he attributes that to Abu Bakr and not to Muhammad himself. And that clear distinction is something that we in the West don't understand. We, we think that it's all conflated into one uh, thing. So that's a very key, important point to recognize. There's even a description of cooking one guy's head in a saucepan and ate from that pan after he had beheaded one particular person. It's quite graphic. It's, it's quite terrible. And you can, I mean, from the outside without knowing more detail, it's easy to just write off a whole continent or a whole section of the world over that type of stuff. But that type of graphic detail is not, say, a stranger to the details that we find in European history. And we, because we understand European history, we don't blame all Europeans for that type of thing. And it's the same thing here, of course. Learning to differentiate really is something that's is very helpful in being able to have a much more nuanced view of the situation in other parts of the world that are strikingly similar, just with different languages and customs. Something I didn't know that Tawhidi brings up is that the Abu Bakr of uh, al-Baghdadi, which is Abu Bakr of Baghdad, has a real name of Ibrahim Awad Ibrahim al-Badri. And he apparently changed his name. Now, this says here, in order to initiate the same method of violence that was initiated by or instantiated by Abu Bakr the first caliph. Now, obviously, we don't know if that's true, but it is an interesting concept to see that someone would change their name to map it after someone who was more violent and not after a 
the prophet that we all from outside of the faith consider to be the source of that uh, violence, whether it's true or not, is not for me to determine. Another interesting phenomenon here is that there was an agreed upon battle, as were the customs of the time, as I mentioned earlier, that, that the prophet of Islam, Muhammad, appointed um, Usama ibn Zayd as the commander of, or the commander of an army of, in order to respond in an agreed upon battle within Palestine. And Muhammad then died, but then apparently it was Abu Bakr who then changed the plans and ordered on top of that for there to be a numerous amount of, or a numerous amount of massacres. Very interesting that he's very focused on the differentiating of the version of Islam from the Prophet Muhammad to Abu Bakr. And so uh, it seems to me that he does not recognize Abu Bakr as a legitimate leader of Islam and a, maybe a perverter, which... I mean, look, like I said, whether that's true or not, who knows? But it's fascinating that he's very clear about that in his own mind. Subsequent pages refer to the subsequent caliphs for whom Dr. Tawhidi has even less respect, it seems. He mentions their constant mass murdering, including murders of their own children, and using quotes that they have uttered themselves, of course, by by necessity are going to be out of context so you you can't trust them necessarily but they they show that muhammad's views dr muhammad tawhidi's views are ones that show these caliphs as not being muslims at all and in fact usurping the faith in order to turn it into a some sort of misogynistic blood bath butchering type of dynasty and i mean who knows from the outside how true that is or isn't but it's fascinating that people think that it's also consistent with many different dynasties in the past that have taken advantage of some sort of benevolent or i guess respected leader to then usurp that power and take it to their own advantage uh had mentions a lot of torture of women and things that were apparently against the majority of what the muslim communities believed in at the time so it's it's not stuff i recommend for the faint of hearted Another fascinating thing the doctor mentions is the violence and the misogyny and the hatred, apparently, that these people experienced before they even embraced Islam itself. So he's suggesting, I guess, the idea that they are bringing in violence from their own pre-Islamic culture into the faith and then contaminating it, according to him. Apparently, we had here one of the caliphs apologizing to a woman he, that he had to stop hitting her because he got tired. And this, of course, is another Arabic woman. So we can see here that the violence really was suffered mostly by Arabs and subsequently in today's society, many Muslims themselves. It's similar, I guess, analogously to how a minority anywhere, like the Bolsheviks, were able to take over Russia and annihilate existence, its existence and build a whole new culture on the back of it, which led to the death of millions of people. I can understand now why Dr. Tawhidi would be hated by some people in the Islamic archipelago. He openly calls the second caliph and father-in-law of Prophet Muhammad a rapist. That's a pretty divisive claim. It's definitely invidious, that's for sure. He does go on to justify why he makes that claim using quotes and references as well. So it's up to you if you want to get into detail. But 
look, ultimately, it's it's quite disturbing. Um, but once you know, it's I mean, it's good to see the difference, the differences between people who recognize certain things that they find that they reject out of the very faith that us in the West thinks encompasses and embraces these type of actions. And Dr. Tawhidi now apparently has spent 15 years studying the third caliph or khalif being Uthman bin Affan. And he goes on to talk about uh, the murdering of his wife, stoning of an innocent woman, theft of the Islamic nation's treasury. <laughs> it just keeps going. A fascinating quote, actually, that I noticed here from Ali ibn Abi Talib, I think, who was, according to the Shia, the first leader of Islam after Muhammad the Prophet, or the fourth caliph, according to the Sunnah, says here, he is famous for a quote, which is that people are either your brothers and sisters in faith or your equals in humanity. And the what he, I guess, his behavior would be more consistent with what you would expect from a leader that you would look up to today, according to Dr. Tawhidi, whether that's true or not. He was not someone who was looking for violence or many of the other misogynistic acts or other acts of hatred that were thrust upon the Muslim people by the first three caliphs, according to Dr. Imam. And I won't get into detail, but you can have a look at the book about page 173 to find out more if that's what you want to do. Another interesting belief here by the Imam was that when Ali was assassinated, as he was dying, he requested that nobody seek revenge and that if he survived, he himself would pardon the attacker. That's something that is not discussed a lot in the West as something that is quite pervasive in the Islamic world and is on one side of the civil war between, say, those who were potentially looking for some sort of Islamic supremacy and those who think like this. And even in that case, their version of Islam, let's just say, which is completely different. And I really stress that because I'm talking to you as somebody who was a victim or, or had a direct family member uh, family members be victims of a terrorist attack and it's very easy to decide to just hate everybody equally that is, isn't somehow related to the attackers in your mind or the belief of the attackers or some sort of social disposition predisposition and yet even then I tell you that there are clearly differences and whether or not that's actually true the fact that people who believe in Ali or venerate Ali believe that to be true is quite an important factor